Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Um, so tonight we're beginning a 13-week, uh, 26 class uh, structured study of the Dhammapada. Uh, the Dhammapada is a, uh, a book in the uh, Kudaka Nikaya, uh, the fifth book of the Pali Canon, and that section of the Pali Canon contains um, works that are otherwise more difficult to classify. The Udana is one of them, uh, a collection of very short suttas. Uh, the Teragatha and the Teragatha, the poems of the ancient monks and nuns are included in the Kadakanakai and a couple other books. Um, most scholars agree, we have a little talk about this earlier, about the, the, um, the genesis of the Dhammapada, what it was used for, how it came to be. And most scholars agree, uh, and not that I am uh, a scholar, but I think it was probably used as a um, kind of a training manual, uh, something that would be offered to novices as an easy way of uh, remembering the broad strokes of the Dhamma. But of course, there's no um, real direct instruction in the Dhammapada, but it is a very accessible, but again, broad uh, presentation of the Dhamma. Its value really comes in, in, in both of those ways, both for novices and for people that have uh, quite a bit of understanding of the Buddha's Dhamma. And I think those of you that... Uh, have been studying for a while, you'll see the depth of this, uh, especially in the way it's presented without any, you know, like all my teachings are stripped of any mysticism and it's always um, the, the translations and the restoration of the Dhammapada, like everything else that I do, was, was um, uh, brought uh, to bear within the context of the dependent, dependent origination and Four Noble Truths. So, um, let me read it. The first chapter is called the Yamakavaga. Uh, and again, remember that the, the Dhammapada also somewhat builds from the first chapter to the last chapter. And I said that there's no real instruction, but there is some um, useful insights into the Eightfold Path as we get deeper into the Dhammapada, particularly the last chapter. Okay, let me begin. And so again, as with all of the Buddhist teachings, you can say that they begin and end at a critical point, and that is this. The quality of mind predates all mental states. That, that is the, the most important thing to understand about the Dhamma. What we hold in mind, what I refer to as refined mindfulness, what we hold in mind will always determine our experience. Mind is the governing principle. Mind defines all phenomena. Notice that the Buddha is not teaching that mind creates all phenomena as it's commonly believed that somehow we have the creative, our minds have the ability to create, whether it's now or in the future. Uh, and it's often presented that way. And of course, our minds cannot create anything, but as the Buddha teaches us, our minds define everything, meaning what the, the qualities that we um, attribute ordinary phenomena will determine our experience or our relationship with that phenomena, beginning with ourselves. We are also phenomena as individuals. 
and what we think about ourselves, what we hold in mind about ourselves, will define our phenomena of who and what we are, and consequently, every experience that we have. Mind defines all phenomena. What we hold in mind will, will define the experience of our life. If a person speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering will follow like a wheel following an oxen's hoof. Now again, we're not talking about pure, pure in the terms of pure morality, but pure in the terms of, in, in relation to the Dhamma. It's pure in, in its uh, refined mindfulness of the Eightfold Path. The quality of mind precedes all mental states. Mind is the governing principle. Mind defines all phenomena. If a person speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness will follow like a constant shadow. Notice the repetition there between the first paragraph and the second. And we're talking about different effects, aren't we? I'm just gonna, just to make the point, the quality of mind precedes all mental states. Mind is the governing principle. Mind defines all phenomena. Then here's a different application of that. If a person speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness will follow like a constant shadow. Again, the application of what we're holding in mind defines what we're going to act. Our happiness will follow or our unhappiness will follow depending on what we hold in mind. And no other, there, there's no other t- determining factor of that, of anything in our lives. The sole quality of our life is dependent on what we hold in mind. And if we're holding in mind reality as defined as dependent origination in Four Noble Truths, then what we hold in mind will constantly bring meaning and fulfillment in this moment. It will end grasping after meaning in this life or grasping after achievement because in this moment we will realize that in this moment, having united my mind and my body, I have achieved everything I ever can in this life. The, 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 the challenge then is to continue maintaining that high level of achievement, which means constant awareness of who we are in relation to the world, holding in mind. Harboring thoughts of being abused, robbed, injured, or overpowered does not still hatred. Boy, if we could learn that one lesson, huh? Instead of blaming everyone and holding grievances from cradle to grave or holding grievances against this group of people or that group of people or holding grievances against people that don't adapt, adopt my ideology when everyone else is. That's hatred. Another word for hatred is aversion. Greed, aversion, and deluded thinking are the three defilements. Harboring thoughts of being abused, robbed, injured, or overpowered does not still hatred. Those who harbor such thoughts will remain agitated. We all know that, don't we? Have we ever felt good thinking ill will of other people or ourselves? No, it's impossible. And yet we do it. We, in fact, it's gotten to the point, it's raised to the level now of, of uh, uh, almost a social contract that we engage with each other by talking about our grievances. And what the hell is pissing us off today in the next moment? And we wonder why we're always agitated. We wonder why we can't develop a measure of concentration. Because we're filled with aversion. And, 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 the, and the other side of that is greed. Greed and aversion are really the same things. It's wanting me or the world or people in the world to be different than they are. Instead of the radical acceptance taught by Siddhartha Gautama. That's what's reflected in this chapter. Abandoning thoughts of being abused, robbed, injured, or overpowered always stills hatred. If my mind is agitated, recognize the agitating thought and simply abandon it. There's no analysis 
There's no blame. There's not figure, no figuring out why am I thinking about this? Who to blame for it? What's wrong with me? No. Recognize that it's, a, that it's an impure thought and simply abandon it. Hatred always continues hatred. Non-hatred alone ends hatred. You could say that without using those extreme words. Aversion always continues aversion. Non-aversion alone ends non-aversion. And the Buddha continues that so powerful statement by saying, and this law is timeless. Many ignore the fleeting nature of life. The wise who, who understand impermanence do not quarrel with others. Why would we? Just as a strong wind will fail a weak tree, ignorance will consume those living for sensual pleasures, lacking restraint, gorging on food, and being lazy. Just as a strong wind does not affect a rocky mountain, ignorance will never cling to those who are mindful of the defilements, the greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. They are wise in restraint, moderate with food, with conviction for the Dhamma, and tireless in their efforts. Those ignorant, depraved, lacking restraint. Now we're talking about very specific ignorance, remember. It's ignorance of four noble truths. Those ignorant of four noble truths, so depraved, now lacking restraint, dishonest, though wearing a disciple's robes, robes are not worthy of respect. And that is such an important line because think about the culture during the Buddha's time. All that you had to do was put on the robes of a mendicant or take off the clothes and be a I mean, nudity or, or that, that type of... Um, of uh, asceticism was common during the Buddhist time. And if you did, if you simply put on the robes, you were demanding that other people respect you for that, whether you deserved it or not. And the Buddha recognized that immediately when he left the palace grounds. Realized that there were a lot of, just to use an old-fashioned word, a lot of charlatans around. To be recognized and, and not disrespected in a, in a direct way, but disrespected as in holding back our respect. They don't deserve it. Why? Because they don't basically don't know what they're talking about. Those ignorant, depraved, lacking restraint, dishonest, the wearing of disciples' robes are not worthy of respect. Why is that so important? Why does it have such an effect on me? And why am I emphasizing it so much? Because we've gotten to the point of political correctness where we're not even willing to look at ignorance in that form. And unless we're willing to look at how ignorance manifests in the world and how ignorance manifests in ourselves, we'll never be able to abandon it. We have to recognize it if we're going to abandon it. Those who have abandoned ignorance and depravity now in control of their senses. In control. That, doesn't, that means that we're actually controlling our senses. Our sense gates are in place. We're practicing wise restraint. In control of their sense senses. Establishing virtue, they alone are worthy of respect. So if you're going through life like Rodney Dangerfield, wondering why you get no respect, there's a reason for it. You might not deserve it. But if you develop the Buddhist Dhamma to a certain point, many will give you the respect you deserve because they, they can't do otherwise. In other words, you don't have anything to push up against. And those that don't will not matter because you will have control of your mind. Those who are in control of their senses, established in virtue, they alone are worthy of respect. They are Dhamma practitioners. 
Those that crave for it and cling to what is worthless and ignore what is priceless, the Dhamma, mindful only of what is rooted in ignorance, will never realize the Dhamma. Those that know the heartwood to be heartwood and sapwood to be sapwood, establish and refine mindfulness, they will realize the Dhamma. Again, during the Buddhist time, there were a lot of things that were put out as heartwood that were just sapwood, and there was a lot of things that were not recognized as sapwood and taken as heartwood. The Buddha saw just saw that almost as soon as he started practicing or, or seeking. Just as rain will rot a poorly roofed house, passion will rot a poorly developed mind. So instead of embracing our passions and chasing after our passions like we're told to do, especially in the modern New Age society, a New Age mentality, the Buddha's teaching us from 2,600 years ago, hold on, that passion that you're so enamored with, that's rotting a poorly developed mind. Develop your mind. Develop passion for the Dhamma and all other passions will fall away. Just as rain will not rot a properly roofed house, Passion will never destroy. I'm sorry. Lost the, just lost the... Uh, just, I couldn't see it for a minute. Give me, I need a break. Sometimes my eyes just say, no more. And they just did that. So give me a second. Okay. Passion will never destroy a properly developed mind. I couldn't see it. The ignorant, hurtful in thoughts, words, and deeds, suffers endlessly. The ignorant, hurtful in thoughts, words, and deeds, suffers endlessly. Afflicted with regret, always mindful of misdeeds of themselves and others. The wise, pure in thought, word, and deed, rejoice endlessly. What are, we, what are, what are they rejoicing at? Are they just mindless fools? No. They're rejoicing at being alive in this moment because they know what it's like to not be alive in this moment. And that's the difference between a wise Dhamma practitioner and those that aren't. They are at peace, always mindful of the benefits of wise restraint. The ignorant, hurtful in thoughts, words, and deeds, suffers endlessly, mindful of misdeeds constantly and constantly tormented. How can you not? The wise, pure in thought, word, and deed, are always delighted. Mindful of their purity, they are constantly delighted. Mindful of their purity, we know it. Much though they read sacred, sacred texts, but acting poorly, overcome by greed, they do not gain the benefits of the heart. But it used to drove, drive me crazy. I couldn't understand how putting all this effort. I'm reading all these different texts. I must have read read the Heart Sutra, the Lotus Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, and the Platform, Platform Sutra, maybe 50 times each. And every time I left with my head spinning, blaming myself, why am I such an idiot? Why can't I understand this? Well, I wasn't an idiot. What I was reading was completely un not understandable. Much though they read sacred texts, but acting poorly, overcome by greed, they do not gain the benefits of the heart. But I wasn't reading it. How could I gain the benefit of it? Little though they read sacred texts, but putting the Dhamma into practice, abandoning greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, with true wisdom, their mind free from ignorance, clinging to nothing in this world or any other, meaning any fabrications, this one has, has gained the benefits of the well-integrated life. I'm going to read that last because that is the last. 
Little though they read sacred text. What the Buddha is saying here, he's not saying that there's no benefit in reading or listening, but he's saying that's not an entire, a complete Dhamma practice. There's more to it. Little though they read sacred text, but putting the Dhamma into practice, abandoning greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, we can all do that easily, with true wisdom, their mind free from ignorance, and clinging to nothing in, the, in this world or any other, having abandoned all fabrications, this one has gained the benefits of a well-integrated life. That's the end of that chapter. Thank you all. So I know I made a very short chapter into something a little bit longer, but uh, there's so much in these things uh, in the Dhammapada. Um, and so when they're presented in that context, they really are almost a complete teaching, aren't they? So uh, I think we're going to go around the online room first. Uh, and Brian was online first, so let's go to Brian. Brian, how are you? Good, John, how are you? I'm good, thank you for asking. Uh, this is my first rodeo on the Dhammapada, so this was, it's interesting, having, having gone through all the other stuff we've gone through, I just, I can hear the, um, I'm the owner of my comma, the heir of my comma, born of my comma, like just the, the tone and the cadence of this is um, eerily similar to the other stuff, and it's, yeah. you know, it, just, it resonates on a whole bunch of different levels now that I don't think it would have for me six months ago, so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the rest of this. Yeah, and, and it, the Dhammapada is kind of, I mean, it is very, very valuable for, for novices, but when you really understand where this is coming from, it, it, it can do that. I mean, it's, there really is so yeah. much there. So. Uh, I'm glad you joined us. Thanks. Meg, how are you? Hi there. I'm doing really great. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here, and um, I'm going to take silence today. I'm glad you joined. Jane, how are you tonight? I'm well, thank you. Um, you're right, there is quite a bit in here. Yeah. Um, I just pulled out one sentence that resonated with me. It said, the wise who understand impermanence do not quarrel with others. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking about, I did spend a lot of my life, you know, arguing a point or, yeah. you know, and it's like, now I understand it doesn't really matter. I mean, the next second that might not be important, or even if it is, so what? You know. So what? Yeah. It, it really doesn't matter. What? It, what? It, I mean, that's that's really liberation, isn't it? When it you, is. I mean, you you have really disenamored yourself with the world when you can get to that point. So, good for you, Jane. I'm glad you joined us tonight. Thank you, John. Cliff, welcome to our sangha. Permanence, we 
talk about impermanence as being something that's like uh, a dukkha of some sort. But when you see it for what it is, it's just this beautiful, constant unfolding and flow of, of energy and sensation and beauty. It's, it's just stunning. So you're, you're overwhelmed by it. You can't help but be joyful. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's just, you know, it's just the way that it is. And, and interesting enough, uh, I have a 99-year-old father and a 94-year-old mother-in-law. Uh -huh. And uh, they are both absolutely miserable. And they tell me constantly that the world has never been in worse shape. Things have never been this bad as long as they've been alive. And uh, there's just more anger and strife, and everything is just horrible. And all they can, and and I'm looking around, and I'm just seeing this is just not so. And this, you know, but Dad, you lived through World War II. You fought, you know, these battles to save the world, and there was people being burnt alive. And I mean, all of this horror. This is worse. Oh, it's much, much worse now. My mother was just the same thing. Yeah. Because they sit in front of CNN yeah. and uh, CNBC. 12 hours a day listening to this yep. and their minds are so conditioned by it that that's what they all they, they can see that's right it's 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 incredible to me yeah it, uh, it is yeah and, and one last thing john the heart sutra is so clear is so beautiful is 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 such a, a distinct shortcut for saying all the things that you've been saying about you know, it starts off with talking about the five clinging aggregates and that that is the cause of all suffering. It's the first line of the Heart Sutra. And it just goes on from there and it expounds on that, explaining, you know, all the things that you've been saying. So uh, give it another look. Or, 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 or like most things, it's been tainted by people that explain it that have no clue of what it's about. I, I, I agree with you on, on some of that. But the Heart Sutra also says, ignore the Four Noble Truths. It, 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 it gets... It, I, again, we, we, we should have a talk about that, though. Um, it, it not only says... It doesn't say ignore the Four Noble Truths. It also says the same thing about the Twelve Links, all right, and about awakening and light and so on. All what it is saying is that there is nobody, ultimately, no self, once you stop making right. it, that needs to be saved by the poor no which is because there's nobody to suffer. But that's down the road. But yeah. we, can, we can talk yeah, about I, that some I, I look forward to it. So I'm, I'm so glad you but joined I, us tonight. I, I got to agree with you, though, when you throw the Lotus Sutra in there, the, that one, you know, I shake my head at. Yeah. But the diamond and the, the heart Sutra, maybe not. <laughs> but maybe I don't understand that one yet. Yeah, and it's just well, we'll talk about it. I don't want to get into it tonight. There's there's some other reasons why I don't find it very useful. But I'm so uh, glad you joined us. Yeah, yeah, again, to welcome to our sangha, David. How are you tonight? I'm good, thank you. Ron, how are you tonight? Mm, Goose, good. Goose Gossage, the closer. <laughs> Ron is closing at our retreat. I was thinking Raleigh Fingers. Sunday morning. What's that? I was thinking Raleigh Fingers. Raleigh Finger, Raleigh. Yeah, it's a better name, I think. Raleigh or Sparky. <laughs> the trouble with all that is that I don't know squad of uh, Yeah, what is the Netherlands? They don't play big. What do they play out there? <laughs> they play soccer. Yeah. So they don't play sports, do they? Oh, they do. Corgis. <laughs> um, 
God, it's nice to be back in the Dhammapada. Yeah. Uh, and, and this one, you know, it's, it's right away, it's the overview. You know, everything starts with the mind, and it's, the whole chapter shows what mindfulness and mindlessness does to you. Yeah. And it ends with the one who practices the Dharma is the one who makes out. Yeah. And it's just that simple, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and again, that, that's how the Buddha taught, too. He, again, he didn't, he wasn't, um, uh, he wasn't compromised by the need to be a savior because he knew how foolish that there's no, there's nothing to be saved, so why waste your time saving? And yeah. so he could just say, if you want to have a better life right here, right now, do this. And it worked. I'm still, I'm still uh, amazed how, knowing that uh, he wasn't going to save the whole society and that he's really only looking for some people that, that had enough insight and clarity of mind to, to, see, his, to see the truth that he was yeah. teaching, that he was still so broadly supported in, in that in society mm-hmm. uh, because he must have stepped on some toes oh I mean, he, he did yeah, I mean even the stories of his cousin tried to kill him twice yeah, right. David Dodd. I mean, his other, other people tried uh, because there was great political power in having you know having your your guy your religious guy is the, is the best one in the world mm-hmm. that gives you power it gives you prestige you know? Wasn't the Buddha also concerned about the growing saga and people that were just putting on the robes? And oh yeah, just, yeah. He wasn't. He wasn't interested in numbers. He, was, he, he wanted people grew, that came into a saga to practice the Dharma. And as it was growing, not everyone was on the same page as the Buddha. Yep. Then, as soon as he passed, there was fighting to change it. So he was warning minute, all along. Yeah. Yeah, he was, and, and the the Buddha had to deal with the same greed, aversion, and deluded thinking within his sangha and outside of his sangha as we all do. And, you know, that, that hasn't changed at all. But again, the one, uh, and it, it kind of it, it, it taught me a little bit. I try to teach the Dhamma from what I gathered how Siddhartha taught it, which means he never ever tried. He, he didn't try to membership build at all. He didn't. He wasn't concerned that that he got. Five people or a million people. Right. He just he wanted to teach the pure Dhamma, and that's what grew. Mm-hmm. But we also have to remember that as popular as Buddhism was once in India, it was gone for many, many years. Mm-hmm. So people that would that would um, uh, apply efficacy to something just the fact that it lasts would say, well, Buddhism is, it didn't even make it for a couple hundred years after he died. Mm-hmm. Well, th- that's not the point. Try it. Mm-hmm. Have seat go. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, nobody has to do it. Right, Tim? Good to see you. <laughs> well, I mean, we can talk about anything with the Dhammapada. That's, yeah. that's, that's the good and bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, I'd like to just focus on this particular chapter for my little comments if I may. Please. I found it interesting that the first five verses uh, Deals deals with with you know the hatred and 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 uh, well starts off with the, with mindfulness and uh, hatefulness and aversion and then it, it stops and it goes right to the fleeting nature of life so it mm. does an about face 
discusses that and then gets into almost like dependent origination towards the end mm -hmm. of karma, right? Of right. rebirth. Of that if you don't, almost like a warning, if you if if you if you don't have that pure thought, if you uh, are ignorant and have those hurtful thoughts, words and deeds, that you will have this reoccurring rebirth. Yes. Independent origination. Um, well, I gotta make that it makes it a good point, Tim. And and so that if you understand dependent origination, this is how you apply it. Yeah. And if you don't know that yet, when you hear dependent origination, you'll know how to apply it. it, it but it's so, interesting how in the verses you can almost imagine them saying, are you hateful? Are we all hateful? We all yeah. get that way. Well, this is what it does to us. Yeah. And remember, life is fleeting. And so we all do this. There's no, there's no reason to spend so much time being hateful with life being so short. Yeah, or to hate someone who is hating. Right. So... <laughs> You know, again, I'm looking at like you know the purpose of the chapter, and again to David's point, you know it's like this cliff notes, <laughs> Dhamma cliff notes almost. I mean, you could you, I would say with every chapter you could probably draw out all aspects of the of of the Dhamma as a whole. But what the what the chapters focus on, I'm always interested in. Um, you know the the. Not the evildoer, but you phrased it differently, and I think it, it makes more sense about the ignorant, ignorance of the four noble truths, um, and hurt, hurt, hurtful in thoughts. Now that's that ill will. Yeah. Um, the one other thing I wanted to ask you: you, you said something earlier. You know, I don't consider, based on especially in this chapter, hatefulness and aversion. I separate them because I. Aversion to me is almost like a form of clinging, of, of not wanting something to be. Yeah. Whereas hatefulness is almost a little harder to define because it's based on that introspective nature of what that person thinks hate, what that is. So, I mean, I guess they're similar, but I don't, I don't see that they're the same thing. Yeah, I think, so, I think at the root of hatred is it has to be the, the it is initiated by aversion, wanting something to be different. Or mm -hmm. the hate, it's just it's just a stronger version of of aversion. Okay. And so, so it's generally pointed at people. Yeah, I, and a good example would that be greed is one thing. You know, greed yeah. greed might cause me to pick up the penny that fell out of your pocket. But so when I blow your back of your head off with a forty five to get your wallet, it's still greed, isn't it? It is. Well, it's a lot greed, uglier, though. The greed, right. So, okay. So, in that context, that makes that makes sense. But, I, again, I guess when I was reading the chapter, it felt like it was more subtle of hatefulness. And well, I've got to tell you something now. You because when I remember when I was writing it, um, I, I, it's one of the two things that I kind of, I didn't struggle with that, but I thought about it. And in this case, I thought the diversion wasn't, wasn't strong enough. But you talk about the evildoer. The, the reason why I use the word ignorant is because that's what it means in the Buddha's Dhamma. The Buddha is not talking about evildoers. In the, using the metaphor that he always used, Mara, Mara is the evildoer that always represents the results of ignorance. Yes. So in, in I think the rest are, Now again, if I was trying to do a scholarly restoration, I would be confined by that. I could never have the license to say something right. like that, could I? But because I let go of the need for having a license and just wanted to teach the Dhamma in as pure a way as I possibly could, ignorance is exactly the right word. Well, you prefaced it right there. You said ignorance 
with ill will. Yeah. So anyway, that's so I, I uh, enjoyed it. The Donald Pot is a very you know, it's it's an exciting thing for me. I, I really, yeah. It really resonates with me. So thanks for the. Uh, Explanation. Thank you for bringing it up a couple of weeks ago because I was I was thinking, considering what am I going to do to Donald Potter, where can I fit it in in the future schedules, and now's the right time, so I'm glad we did. Uh, the the other thing, I didn't think much of the Donald Potter until I came like I had read it a little bit, and it was always like uh, the Donald Potter was usually presented in one or two line snippets, mm-hmm. saying, and then it was attributed to the Donald Potter. So I never really took it seriously until. Uh, a student asked me about it, and I said, "Well, yeah, you know, maybe I'll look at it one day." And uh, so I started getting into it, and I said, "Man, this is really something." That, and that led to looking at the Udana, which has some great suits. Of one of these, I only have to live to 140, and I'll restore that one. Uh, and then the Taragatha. There's just such great things in that little book that almost nobody, even people that are studying it, ever get to the Kadaka Nikaya. And it's, mm. it's just great. So, okay, Brett, how are you? Good to see you. Good, uh, good to be here. Um, Thanks for your teaching. Uh, whatever, whatever you hold in mind, you achieve. Is basically the well, what you experience. What you experience. Yeah, yeah. That's a, an important distinction, though, because many people believe that what you create a visualization, what you hold in mind, you will achieve. And as soon as you do that, you you, you put a you create a lot of tension in your own mind. I used to do it. I had a teacher years ago named Arnold Patton, a brilliant man. I loved the guy to this day. I haven't seen him in years, just because of the kind of person he was. And he used to teach this thing called universal principles. And some of his principles were pretty close to what the Buddha told, but most of them were about how to manipulate things to make a lot of money. And he said, one of the things he said is that whenever you, whatever you want to manifest in, your war, in the world, feel joyful about it. And you could even manufacture the joy, meaning let, let me feel joy about owning a pot of gold, and that the joy will be the motivating and I'm really, I'm not giving Arnold Patton enough credit, but I'm too simplifying. But basically, feeling joy, feeling bliss about what you're doing will give you the energy to manifest it in your life. You probably would, but you're creating an awful lot of tension to acquire something that you think you need that you don't need. Because any, that, that type of motivation is, is rooted in a subtle and sometimes not so subtle belief that I am lacking or there's something missing in me and I've got to get all this stuff to compensate it just creates a life of chasing after things, doesn't it? Just and, there's, and there's no dealing with impermanence. He's not dealing with impermanence at all. You're not so dealing with anything. Inevitably, there'll be suffering. And yeah, and so then, then the the use Joseph Campbell's way. The mythic quest becomes the most important thing, doesn't it? Rather than actually understanding what the hell you're doing here, mm-hmm. why you're living this life. And again, I'm not putting down any of those. I I followed Joseph Campbell for years. I read every one of his books. I thought he was. And he was in that way, you know. But I got more understanding about life, I'm talking about the Buddha, from Agrandino than I did from Joseph Campbell, who said when you get to that, Agrandino was a great success writer, uh, 70s and 80s, Mike Napoleon Hill, etc. And he said this one thing that still resonates with me. He says, when you get to the point in life where you're happy, stop. And this guy was saying everything, everybody else was saying, keep piling up, get more and more and more. He was also somebody who, who dealt with his own drug addiction and alcoholism, so maybe he learned something from that about restraint. We get to the plate, and so in our minds, John gets us there. It takes us very quickly to that point where we can say, wow, this is good, this is enough. Mm-hmm. Rest peacefully in, this, in my own mind. 
And when we fully develop that eightfold path, you realize what Cliff said, what we talk about all the time. This moment is the most meaningful, incredible moment we can ever have. We lately been talking a little bit about when we're present for this moment is the only way, but it's the most profound way of touching eternity. How else can we be involved in eternity unless we're present in the moment? And again, Cliff mentioned it. It, it, it is the most meaningful thing we can do. And this little chapter gets us there. So that's enough for tonight. Um, Brett, were you done? I think I might have cut you off a little bit. <clears throat> uh, thank you. Great. Okay. We're going to continue with um, the Dhammapada for the next 25 classes. Um, and uh, you, you all got the notice on the retreat. If you're going, just send me an email. Uh, and, uh, and Cliff, uh, let's, let's get together and have a, have a chat or a Zoom session whenever you, it works for you, too. All right, we'll finish as we always do with uh, the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. The Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta um, as restored by the Amaravati uh, Monastery in London, England. The Buddha's words. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Thank Peace. You. Thank you, John. See you all soon. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. See you. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.